Hi, this is Lily Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Thanks for joining me today. This week we're talking about Esther in the Old Testament, one of the two books in the Old Testament named for women, both wonderful women, Ruth and Esther. I just want to make it clear from the beginning, I don't have a problem with the fact that women are not equally represented in the Old Testament or in any of our scriptures. That has never been a problem for me, and it will never be a problem for me, and I hope it's not a problem for you women. And the reason that I say that is because men and women are the essential component of a couple, a married couple that can produce a family in God's kingdom. This is the only way that either men or women can qualify for exaltation in the highest level of the celestial kingdom is in a marriage with the opposite sex. So I know that God loves women. I know that God honors women just as much as he honors men. He loves his daughters as he loves his sons. And that neither is the man without the woman nor the woman without the man in the Lord. So every time we have a righteous man in the scriptures, I know there were righteous women in that man's life, whether it's a mother or a wife, often a wife and a mother, or um, a sister or other women of the community that reached out in the ways that women can to bless and to lift and to serve in marvelous ways that warm up our very cold planet. So I think this is a beautiful story of Esther, and we're going to talk a little bit about the courage, strength, and influence of righteous women. But first, a note about Esther. Of course, this is where the chronology gets a little interesting because we haven't talked yet about Daniel, whose service as a counselor to kings, emperors really, has probably ended by the time Esther comes on the scene. There are some suggestions that Daniel may even have have kind of come back into service a little bit during the time of Ahasuerus, who is the emperor right now that Esther marries. But that's pretty vague. We don't know for sure. So what we can say is that Daniel's tenure has been mostly to serve Cyrus, Darius, well, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Darius, Xerxes, and Artaxerxes. So he may have finished his tenure, even though we won't talk about Daniel for a few months still. So don't, I mean, I hope that doesn't confuse anybody because really the chronology doesn't matter that much. But but this is a little bit later in the time of the Jewish captivity that started with the Babylonians, but then went to the Persians. And Ahasuerus is a Persian. So here he is, the emperor now, and his wife offends him. <laughs> and she's kind of... She's acting kind of like a jerk. She doesn't come when he asks her to come to meet his guests or so on. And I mean, who knows if there's more to the story than that, but he's offended. And so she is removed from her place. And they have a little bit of a Persian beauty contest here where Ahasuerus, under the advice of his counselors, is looking for another queen. And her uncle, Esther's uncle, Mordecai, puts her forth here and she is chosen. So a lovely woman, obviously, who impresses uh, the selection committee and (laughs) becomes queen. Now, still, this doesn't imply equal power with the emperor, because although in a true eternal marriage, there is equal partnership, meaning equal power, that's not the case at this time and in this situation by any means. So Esther can only enter the presence of the king when she is bidden to do so. And when there is danger to her people, because there are some people who are jealous of Mordecai and jealous of the influence that he might have, so they desire to displace him and actually get rid of all the Jews. This is a story that has been repeated throughout history in terrible ways, right? So he goes to Esther and says, you can save us by persuading your husband, the king, to hear the story and understand that he's being manipulated so that he can, so that you through him will save your people. And of course, you know, she's understandably afraid because the penalty for entering the king's presence without being bidden is death. And these guys didn't hesitate to use that kind of power as we have seen in the stories of history. So there's this beautiful statement that's made by Mordecai to Esther in chapter four that I hope you're already familiar with. 
verse 14, when he says, Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? And that is a beautiful phrase. It's been quoted by leaders in different talks and lessons and messages because there is such a thing as foreordination in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that. And Mordecai is suggesting that perhaps you were foreordained to come forth at this time and in this way to become the queen, the the wife of the king, at least, and then having a chance to, of course, with great courage and risk, see if you can persuade him to understand what's going on and how these people around him are trying to manipulate him in bad ways and... This is what happens. Esther is successful. She enters the presence of a king, and he acknowledges her. Now, she does ask that the people all fast for her. And it's a nice reminder of the power of fasting and the power of collective fasting. When many people of faith fast and pray together, the Lord listens And if it is according to his will, which is always what is best in the eternal sense and in the eternal perspective, then petitions are granted in miraculous ways. So Mordecai is honored because he had done a great service for the king and had never been honored. So he is honored to the chagrin of the people who are trying to (laughs) replace him or not only move him out of any power of influence, but also have him and his people killed. And also her people are saved. The Jewish people are saved from destruction that has been angled for behind the scenes by those jealous men. So it's a nice ending. And there uh, is now a great Jewish festival that comes every year in order to honor this lovely story. Purim is P-U-R-I-M, is the name of the festival that is held every year in order to celebrate Esther. And the Book of Esther is read in these celebrations usually, and it's a pretty noisy celebration with kids often dress up in costumes because it represents Esther not having disclosed her identity as a Jewish girl to the king. So they they kind of represent that in, in wearing costumes or masquerades and lots of food and wine and noisemakers. And when they tell the story and the name of Haman is mentioned, who is the bad guy, all the noisemakers go off and people stomp and and boo and so on. And then, of course, Mordecai and Esther are honored. It's a fun festival. So it's a happy day because it honors the deliverance of the Jewish people from destruction through the acts of Esther and her petition to the king at the suggestion of her uncle Mordecai. So anyway, really a lovely story. But let's talk about something that occurred to me as I was was thinking about Esther. And that is that women have different kinds of courage, strength, and influence from men in a good way. You know, we, again, are hopefully pushing back against the satanically influenced messages of the world that pit men and women against each other. And this has been going on for a long time now. Honestly, it's, it started with feminist movements where there was a diminishment of the woman's traditional role as mother and homemaker and this push that women should go and compete against men and not accept anything less than a one-to-one competitive approach to life against men or with men. And particularly in the work- workplace, which has pulled a lot of women out of their homes. And this is part of Satan's great strategy to damage the family. And and it is quite a successful strategy. I mean, it started, I'm not saying it's a brand new thing, but it's kind of a a postmodernist idea here that women and men are the same. So all of this is pretty new compared to the philosophies of mankind for all the, you know, human history where there was no question that men and women were different and that they had to be in a collaborative relationship to survive as a species. And that's very true. I mean, the feminists made it sound like women have been oppressed through the centuries. And yet, 
women have a lot of power. And had they really put down their foot and refused to cooperate, the race would have ended. So to act like women had no power, not really accurate. There had to be this high degree of collaboration in order for anybody to survive. And survival was on the line until just the recent century, basically, and still is in many parts of the world. But in this country, in the U.S., we have so much abundance that we are able to then start to work on some nonsense ideas, such as men and women being exactly the same. More on that later. But I do want to take a minute and say that this idea of competition versus collaboration that the world pushes because of of the influence of Satan seems maybe subtle at first, but it's incredibly damaging. And we have a lot of women in the church that seem to, to get kind of seduced into this sort of competitive idea that, like, why aren't there more scripture stories that involve women or or the mention of more women in scriptures? Or why aren't there more women on the stand at general conference? Or why don't women have the priesthood? I mean, it goes it goes in this same line of, of head-to-head competition instead of recognizing this divine division of labor and that God created us in different and complementary ways— it becomes this this push to try to go head to head and demonstrate somehow that we're exactly the same, that we're equal, as if sameness means equal value, instead of recognizing that it is that divine difference that is so much a blessing for the human race. And that does mean equal value because neither is one without the other or the other without the one. In other words, men without women are toast, and women without men are toast, and there is no next generation, and there is no family life or home or civilization. So, of course, they're of equal value, because if you take away one, the whole darn thing falls apart. And yet, again, we've been sold this bill of goods that tells us that we have to be exactly the same in order for our value to be the same. Not true at all. It's a really false idea, and don't buy into it. And help your children see the difference. I mean, no offense to either either gender, either sex, men or women, but like, you know, when one man dies, there's another one behind him. When one woman dies, there's another one behind her. We can replace people in those different sexes, but if we remove one of the sexes, again, society ends. The family ends. Everything valuable ends. And there is no exaltation in the highest level of the celestial kingdom. That's what happens if you remove men from the scene or women from the scene. So, of course, they are of equal value. Now, um, I'm referencing a speech by Bruce Hafen, and I've probably referenced part of this before, but it's worth repeating as often as we get a chance to. This is now available on Kindle. I think he might even have a hard copy of it. It's called The Touch of Human Kindness on Amazon as a Kindle book, or I think there's a pamphlet that they can send out. But it is just kind of an updated edit, edited version of a speech that Bruce Hafen gave in November of 1999 in Geneva, Switzerland, at the World Congress on Family. So the church sent Bruce Hafen, Elder Bruce Hafen, as a representative and, and a speaker to that conference way back in 1999. And the title of the speech at that time was Motherhood and the Moral Influence of Women. It's a great speech. I don't know if you can find it online anymore because now this pamphlet is available. I think the Kindle version is like $1.99. It is not an expensive pamphlet in the Kindle version, and it's honestly worth the read. And worth sharing with your children because... Both our men and our women, our young men and our young women, need to understand the influences that the world can subtly have on their thinking and help them see this great blessing that we have in the difference between women and men. And of course, because today we're celebrating Esther, we're going to focus on some of these great gifts of women, this moral influence and the power of motherhood. And I heard a commentator say the other day that, and this woman used to be pro-abortion, and she had been kind of, you know, raised in that sort of dogma, but she has switched over as she's become an adult, and now is a married woman, I think, uh, having her second child. And she said, you know, I realize that motherhood is a superpower of women. It is, it's our superpower to be able to not only conceive and deliver a child, but to rear that child 
is so amazing and such an incredible contribution to individuals, to families, to society. Um, She's enamored with the idea now that she is a mother herself. And I thought that's really beautiful to call motherhood a superpower. (laughs) I I totally agree. How many times have we heard that when God wants to change something, he sends a baby to the world? (laughs) I mean, he sent Christ as a, a baby to his mother, Mary. He sent Joseph Smith to his mother, Lucy Max Smith. I mean, he sent Moses to his mother. And then because of the circumstances in Egypt at the time, he is fostered by the sister of the Pharaoh. So these important women help to shape the prophets, that the big players in our society that bless each of us. If we have good men in our lives, they were influenced by mothers. Now, I have to say, that doesn't mean that every mother is great, and that it doesn't mean that there aren't some dysfunctional mothers out there and that, that are kind of problematic, but they still had a part of that person's rearing. And when that person grows up, a lot of what they are is associated with how they were raised as a child for good or ill, and then how they responded to it. So we may have a dysfunctional family like Abraham, the prophet Abraham, and we've talked about, you know, Jacob and his 12 sons and some dysfunction there as Joseph grew up. And nevertheless, you know, even that rivalry between the the two wives of Jacob and then their two handmaidens did end up fomenting the choices that those sons made. So they, they still had choices to make in that circumstance, and it was possible for them to overcome and choose the good, as did Joseph. Okay, back to our idea here on motherhood, and I I may be a little random here, so forgive me, but these are some thoughts that I wanted to share. This is from Bruce Haven's talk. Quote, men and women share the traits of human nature and often perform the same tasks. Now, that's an important statement. No, Jordan Peterson, a Canadian psychologist who's all over YouTube and, and has written some books and so on, very bright guy talks a lot about this collaboration between men and women. And he also talks about research that shows that men and women are more alike than different when it comes to their capacity as human beings, because we can adapt, as it says in the family proclamation, when necessary to kind of cover the territory of the other. I mean, think about all those early pioneer men who were called out of the sacramenting congregation for like a three-year mission in, in England or Europe. And they left, and their wives were able to stretch even if they were pregnant at the time and had children while their husbands were gone and had other children to care for and a farm or subsistence or whatever they were doing, and they managed to sufficiently cover the needs while their husbands were gone. Now, of course, there were the blessings of the Lord, but that doesn't mean it wasn't a significant stretch, and women were able to make that stretch. And we have some wonderful men as well who, if they lose a wife or she's ill or disabled, that they can stretch and cover A lot of the areas of family life that are traditionally done by the mother. And that adaptation is so important and wonderful. We share, just as Elder Hafen says here, share the traits of human nature and we often perform the same tasks. But, Elder Hafen continues, some strengths are gender specific. And that is a terrific statement. Some strengths are gender specific. And we can argue that until we're blue in the face, but it's true. (laughs) Ultimately, when the veil is pulled back, these things will be so crystal clear. And honestly, they can be crystal clear right now through the spirit, through common sense to a large extent, and certainly with the ratifying power of the spirit telling us that, yes, some strengths are gender specific as given by God, right? And we are losing, Elder Hafen continues, what women have traditionally contributed to cultural stability. So he's talking, again, this is 1999, but he's talking post-feminism, that it has pushed women out of the homes to, to a large extent, pushed them into the workplace. For many, it encouraged young women to seek a career before worrying about motherhood, read interesting books about women and motherhood years ago after my doctoral program. I seemed to read through a lot of books about family and women's roles and father's roles. And some of those talked about the big lie that had been told to young women by the feminists, 
that they could have it all. So some of these women postponed having children so that they could pursue a career and have that head-to-head competition with men in the only arena that seemed to be true success for the feminists. And then when they decided to get married and have children, they could no longer have children. Their fertility had dropped so much that either they weren't able to or they weren't able to have as many as they wanted or there were all kinds of difficulties and expenses involved. Now, there are other things that affect fertility, but that's one of them because fertility can drop off dramatically for women as they get a little older. So it was interesting. In fact, the book was written by a journalist who had been asked to write an article on women who had broken the glass ceiling and had been very competitive and successful in the arena of careers and each in their own career. So she had like five women that she spent time with and, you know, with their permission and cooperating for this article She had these extensive visits where she got information about how they had done this and wrote the article and submitted it. It was all fine. And then later, after the article had been published, she went back and she was putting her notes together in order so that she could file them away. And for the first time, it struck her that not one of those five women had ever had a child. And that gave her pause. And she decided to go back and at her own expense now, visit with those women again. And she like took them to lunch or went to visit. And delicately, because this is a tender subject, she, because she had formed a little bit of a relationship with them, asked them about not having a child. And the author says that she unlocked a whole vault of pain and anger and loss and frustration that these women had felt betrayed because they had to give up motherhood in order to be that successful in their careers. And they were not very happy about the trade-off. And here are women who had reached the pinnacle. So anyway, this led to this journalist writing a, a book about the value of motherhood. And thank heavens for people like that who try to pull us back from the pendulum having swung to such an extreme that motherhood is dismissed. Now, of course, we haven't pulled it back very much because there is a continued effort to dismiss motherhood and even to treat it with contempt. Oh, I have to read one more sentence by Elder Hafen here. Women have held together our most precious relationships, our marriages and child-parent ties. I'm going to read it again. Women have held together our most precious relationships, our marriages and child-parent ties. So let me just mention that one of the reasons that people are persuaded by these sort of feminist ideologies is that they will look at some imperfect situation that has legitimate concerns or legitimate imperfections in their application, and then overcorrect. Or basically, not by chance am I using this expression, throw the baby out with the bathwater. They do that all the time. You know, I mean, it's like, okay, here's a problem, or this isn't working perfectly, so let's get rid of the entire institution. And that's what we, we have seen, and we continue to see some of that. For instance, can mothers be taken for granted and exploited? Oh, absolutely. Of, of course they can. Anybody who is in a service position or giving place or whatever in a sacrificial role can can be taken advantage of. But then what do we do? Destroy the respect and value for motherhood completely and say, don't go near motherhood because you'll be exploited by definition? That's not the answer. That's taking the pendulum all the way to the other side and definitely throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Motherhood is bad all of a sudden because it can be exploited. Can men abuse the priesthood? Of course. We're warned about that specifically in section 121. And God is very clear about the fact that he takes away any any true godly authority from a man who is abusing that power. But giving women the priesthood is not the answer. Because it's not that we can like, okay, well, then we don't want men in charge. We just want women in charge. No, we need good men and good women. We need men who really will advocate and protect, as well as women who will advocate and protect for their partners, for their children together, but in their specific strengths that are complementarity and synergistic. 
So I just would warn against this idea. This happens all the time. People point out a legitimate concern, some some injury that people have felt, and then they go too far. And I think we hear a lot of that continuing today, probably all through the history of mankind, actually. But but we hear things like, you know, because some women have been mistreated in marriage, then they need to be in, in charge of this, that, or the other, or they need not to marry, or they need to be quick to divorce, or anyway, things that that are overcorrections. I want to be careful. Sometimes there is a need for divorce, not as often as it happens in our society by a long shot. But there does need to be a way to end a marriage in some cases. What I am saying, though, is that we have seen that our society has turned marriage into a disposable relationship with the idea that you can always just start again and no harm, no foul. But that's it's just not that antiseptic. It's, it's not that clean an issue. There are a lot of costs involved. So, you know, beware of that pendulum swinging. Beware. And I do think that this is one of the great successes of Satan, that uh, temporary successes, because he's going to hit a big failure here in a while. But I think it's a big success for him temporally that people buy into that argument because it, something isn't perfect. Let's completely get rid of it instead of correcting it. Because not all men are good husbands or good priesthood holders. Let's have women have the priesthood. That is not an answer. It's going against the great plan of our Heavenly Father. That is a perfect plan of happiness. What we need is to raise good men. And mothers, you have a lot of of influence there. As we say, the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that can rule the world. We can influence our children in ways that they become good men and good women. And by doing so, bless so many who will come in contact with those with those children as they as they grow and as they become adults. Okay, I, I'm going to mention. I think I've mentioned this before, but you know, it's been a long time. About probably not that long after Elder Hafen gave that speech, because it was, yeah, maybe around. It might have even been before. I think it was before he gave that speech. I think it was within just a week or two time frame that I had talked with both a daughter on the West Coast and a daughter-in-law on the East Coast. Both their husbands were in graduate school, and they had gone to different events, social events that the graduate school had for the students and their spouses or partners. And at that event, they had both been kind of stung by the fact that when they were mingling with people in the group, as you do, they had met people more than once who had asked what they did. And when they said they were full-time mothers, there had been a visible and kind of physical recoil like stepping back as from a leper or something. (laughs) Like, oh, you're just a full-time mom. You must have nothing interesting to say, or you must not be an interesting person or a person of value. And it was notable, again, that it happened on both coasts within a very short period of time. And it's certainly, you know, ridiculous and sad, yet that still happens. It, It even happens in the church. I remember a woman mentioning to me once, she said, you know, we talk about how important it is for women to be at home and to rear our children full-time if possible. The prophets have been very clear about that. Nevertheless, she said, we go to women's conferences and they have all these professional women speak. (laughs) I was like, that's true. (laughs) That's often true. How often do we have mothers get up and speak out of the wealth of their experience? Now, I'm one of those professional women now. I didn't used to be. I mean, for almost 20 full years, I was a full-time mother at home. And it was where I really learned the gospel in the trenches and learned how to receive revelation for parenting and for marriage and family. And I'm so grateful for that time. I, I can't even imagine not having had that opportunity. I know it's not available to every woman We have single sisters out there who are doing amazing work to keep their families together, single moms. We have single women who haven't married who are still contributing wonderful warmth of human touch to their associates and to the society that they live in and to the church as they warm up the planet too. But where possible, where possible, it is wonderful and still ideal to have a mother full-time at home where the family is supported by dad's work. 
I remember several years ago, someone telling me that, that he had gone around a Sunday school class and asked the kids what they expected in marriage. And the girls kind of wanted to stay home full time, but the boys in that young adult class all mentioned, well, I kind of think my, my wife will work. And they were expecting to have the additional help of a second income. So that was a long time ago. Like, how are we doing in helping our young men be willing to step up and shoulder that divine edict by God that men should provide for their family, except in exceptional cases where there may need to be adaptation, but in general, that men should provide, protect, preside, or whatever or you want to, order you want to give to those, the three Ps of the proclamation for men, right? Provide, protect, preside. So, you know, are we, are we helping our sons value womanhood and motherhood and full-time motherhood? And, and are they planning for it? Are they planning wisely to make choices in education or training so that they can support a family on one income and bless the children forever because of it and bless the marriage in many wonderful ways as well? You know, what's interesting is that when they study self-worth levels, I mean, they usually use the term self-esteem, but honestly, I don't like that anymore because it's gotten so kitschy and overused. And <laughs> But at any rate, when they are measuring things like self-worth or self-esteem in research studies, they find that the women in Western societies, that would be the US, Western Europe, and so on, have a bigger gap in their personal self-worth between men and women than in the third world. So let me explain that, meaning that in the third world, there's not as big a gap between the levels of self-worth that men have and that women have. But in Western societies, since feminism, there is a significant gap between the level of self-worth that men have and the level of self-worth women have. So how much good have the feminists done? Can I just can I pose that question? Because they've done a lot of damage. Women feel worse about themselves in comparison to how men feel about themselves than before feminism. And that gap seems to be even increasing. Now, uh, one person suggests this, this was from a Newsweek article a long time ago, that devaluing motherhood devalues the primary work of most women through history. I'm going to repeat that. Devaluing motherhood devalues the primary work of most women through history, which sends the message that women aren't worth serious consideration. So devaluing motherhood devalues generations of women whose primary work was rearing children, raising those sweet babies, which sends the message that women aren't worth serious consideration. So look at this. Here the feminists come in and say, you've got to go out there and compete in the workplace. And motherhood is either non-essential or it's, you know, akin to bondage and oppression so, you know, leave, break that yoke and go out and, and be a real person. And in doing so, we're basically devaluing what women have contributed to society over the millennia. And then we expect women to, to feel great about themselves, particularly if they have a natural, inborn, like innate, God-given desire to have a family and to, to have children where that's possible. I thought I would mention this because I was talking to somebody. I did a fireside last Sunday night, and I, I was talking to some people afterwards. And I was talking to one mother who also has eight children. She's quite a bit younger than I am. Her kids are still at home. And somehow, I don't remember how it came up, but it was about motherhood and how it is so often devalued. And I said, you know, that reminds me that when my children were going to elementary school and, of course, even the junior highs and the high schools, but mostly it was at the elementary school level that they would have, like, bring your parent to work day, and they would have parents that would come in and talk about their jobs. You know, and this was usually, like I said, in elementary school classrooms, but they would have a lot of dads sign up, whatever. And, you know, I signed up, <laughs> and I would put down full-time homemaker, and I would go in and talk to those kids about how wonderful it was to be a full-time homemaker 
and what that looked like and what kinds of skills I needed and how I was blessed to have education and some skill training that I honestly did a lot of on-the-job learning and, and how wonderful it was to be full-time with my own children. And I hope that, that that's not the last time that will happen. I hope some of you mothers, if that chance comes up, will volunteer and go in there and advocate for motherhood, not just to the young women, but to the young men too, so that everybody can value how incredibly important this work is. This is not designed to hurt people who have to be working moms, not at all. There are all kinds of extenuating circumstances in our complicated world. And this is not ever about condemning our neighbor or second-guessing them, because that's none of our business. But it is about not apologizing for God's plan for families. And where it's possible, we should still seek that wonderful unit of a dad who provides financially and a mom who is home with the children. And my mother made a wonderful observation to me years and years ago, where she said, you know, women have more than one life. And that was really a great insight, because what she meant was that children grow up. And it depends on how many years your kids encompass in terms of their birth years. With mine, I, you know, I had eight children in 12 years, and so they were all in school before I went back to graduate school. And that's not saying that I was happy about leaving them at home to go back to school, because even though they were all in school, there are those precious hours after school where I really enjoyed being there to detox the day with my kids and to hear how things had gone and to, to talk about what they were learning and whether it was good stuff or not so good stuff. And we, either way, we had great discussions. So I, I still would have, as my first choice, stayed as a full-time mom while my kids were all in school. But God had other plans for me, and I'm so grateful that he allowed me to be home until my youngest was in first grade and my parents had come home from being mission presidents in Mexico and decided to settle in our city so that if I wasn't home, they were. God it was so generous to me that my bases were covered by my wonderful parents, mostly my mother because my dad was back and forth to Mexico still <laughs> starting some schools. But it was such a blessing to me that God wanted me to have that second life in a way, that extra life, because he had a plan that I hadn't seen but I was able to have that time at home full time with my kids and then to have backup from my parents when I needed to go back to school and didn't have as much control over my schedule for at least those years that I was in school. I want to mention one other thing about motherhood that I've probably mentioned before. When I was teaching at the Y, pretty early on, I was teaching classes on marriage and family and, and most of that ended up being the proclamation class, but sometimes some of the other classes in the department. One woman, a young woman, who was a great young woman, I'd gotten to know her a little bit after class, and she uh, was a very active, faithful, Latter-day Saint young woman. Mm -hmm. And she asked a question once in class saying, what if being home full-time with your kids isn't enough for you? And I had never really heard that question before that time, but if somebody else didn't ask it in my subsequent classes, I brought it up because I wanted to address it. And without having any prep on that, my first response was one that I never changed, which was, if being home full-time with your children is not enough for you, you're doing it wrong. There is nothing more mind-expanding and soul-expanding and growth-oriented than rearing children. And serving our communities when the children are in school. The women who are full-time homemakers, even when their children are completely grown, are the ones who handle our funerals. They help the mothers of twins or triplets. They step up when there are needs because they have the flexibility to volunteer and give time to their neighbors in the community in ways that working women are unable to. When I was a Relief Society president, I was already past my first graduate program, and I was in my internship and licensure for the social work degree. And I was so grateful for those full-time homemakers whose children were either in school or, or even graduated and out of the home who kept things together for our ward and our neighborhoods. All kinds of wonderful women in different circumstances, but there is such value to that available flex time. 
doesn't mean they don't have plenty to do. I mean, I don't even say, oh, I'm free on Fridays. I say I'm flexible (laughs) on whatever day I'm talking about (laughs) because I'm not free. And when you're home full time, you're not free. You're just flexible. Some things are set, but you have a little more flexibility than somebody who is at an office or in a career. And that flexibility is such a gift to our families, to our neighborhoods, to our wards, and to the world. Now, notice that we're in a world now that not only is diminishing the value of mother, but wants to erase the word mother. And I hope you are having these conversations with your children. There are all kinds of these questions. We had a Supreme Court justice nominee who now is sworn into the court who would not answer the question, what is a woman? That's a serious decay in society. Now, most people of common sense can answer that question, and many young children who have not been brainwashed yet can answer that question without any hesitation, and yet here we have a woman of of education and all this supposed professional experience who declines to answer that question. Now, we're going way past now diminishing the value of women or of motherhood to not even being willing to give it a definition because now, now men can be women and women can be men. And this is astonishing. And we have those, there's that pregnant man emoji on on phones. And there's, I mean, now they want to erase the word mother and call it, what do they call it, birthing person or something or menstruating person. Or they want to talk about chest feeding instead of breastfeeding. I mean, this is pretty serious that the world has become this brazen. And again, it's, it's all backed by Satan, but it's all over our society where where we are buying into these ridiculous and diminishing values of women. Mother is one of the most beautiful words on the planet. And now we can't say it because it's, it's not clear what that is or it's going to offend somebody. Th- this is horrible. And I do hope that you're having very, very clear conversations with your children about it. This is not about trying to treat others poorly or be unkind, but we have to speak the truth and we want our children to know what the truth is. And this is how social change happens all the time. First, they go for the language. They go for the vocabulary and they start shifting things. And as they shift, then it becomes set in our speech and our interaction with each other in society. And it starts to creep in. It's in the books, it's in the movies, it's in the media. And and it starts to settle in people's minds, and we go from zero to 60 before we know it. It's not okay to skip these conversations with our children. And again, how incredibly inspired our prophets have been to provide us with a family proclamation inspired of God that we can refer to as direct revelation from God for this day. I just want to end with this. Well, two thoughts. First, that there is this wonderful civilizing influence that women have, not only on men, but on society in general. And this is what we see here with Esther. She helps to civilize the response of her husband, the king, and tone it down so that he is not persuaded by wicked men, but persuaded by her voice of kindness and truth an entreaty to hold back from destroying an entire people that are the people of God. As a counselor, I want to say that I've seen too often that I think, again, in our post-feminist world, women have been encouraged to go kind of toe-to-toe or head-to-head, face-to-face, you know, in knock-down, drag-out confrontations with men. And that can happen in marriage, where we feel like, oh, I've got to be you know, non-victim, so I'm going to stand up. But becoming too aggressive, sometimes we, we go way past our feminine strengths, our womanly strengths, and we become more manlike. And sometimes we have seen things like, you know, articles like this about women in the workplace who, if they're going to be really successive, be, or successful, become more aggressive and more domineering and so on. And anyway, that's, that's sad because I don't think that's necessary to be successful. And I think that we are not being really true to some of our our very specific womanly strengths that God has given us to collaborate with men. So 
At any rate, I'm reminded of, well, some of my clients have reminded me actually of a line from the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, where the mother is giving advice to her daughter before the marriage and says something like, you know, men are the head, but women are the neck and can turn the head. Now, not in a manipulative way. That would not be ever God's way. But we are different. And rather than going head to head in conflict in our marriages or in our relationships, what if we what if we do take the example of Esther and we persuade? We're gentle and kind and warm. I remember reading a, a novel when I was probably still in high school by an author named Georgette Heyer. She wrote a lot of fun books that were fun for a young woman to read, and they were clean, so that was really a bonus. <laughs> and one of them, I'll never forget, it was a single woman who was a little older than the women were who got married back in that day. But she had some additional freedoms because she had a single brother. So she traveled with him and kind of managed his household and his travels and so on. So uh, she's one of the main characters in the book. And as she gets to a certain place, a certain town that they're visiting, there is another little couple there that she meets and she wants to help them with something. So she wants to stay there longer than they had originally planned. But she doesn't want to reveal this young couple's secret to her brother or anybody else because the brother actually is a very nice guy, but he's not very discreet. So she knows he probably would end up talking about it in an uncomfortable place where it could create some danger. So she persuades him to stay by just, you know, making some observations about things that he might enjoy or showing some pros and cons to staying there that, that might appeal to him. And he is persuaded. And again, can this turn into manipulation? Yes, it can. If it's meant to win over the other person or take advantage or exploit or con them in some way, that's never okay. But we're not talking about that. She had no ill intentions toward her brother, but there was something that she thought was important. And she wanted to persuade him to give her the time in that area to help this young couple. And she does. And he is, you know, it's, you can see it right there where he even starts to kind of pick up on her idea and say like, okay, I think I want to do this. And it becomes his idea. I truly believe that that's the kind of thing that happened here with Esther. And I think it's a tremendous example that we should not forget. And then it reminds us, hopefully, of DNC 121, where God tells us that no power or authority can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood. But let me add to that, or by virtue of being right. So even if the wife is right and the husband is wrong, for her to insist or go head to head, face to face in a confrontive and contentious way is not God's way of doing things. And what does he say in the next verse? Only by persuasion. Now, I believe that men, too, need to persuade, because he's talking to men directly right there, and women also can benefit from that wonderful page of counsel in section 121. But right now, I'm talking about how women have persuasive powers that are given to us. And as long as we are not taking advantage of anybody or being manipulative or selfish, then sisters, let us learn to reject the ideas of face-to-face confrontation where we have to be the same as the men and instead use the powers of persuasion. Now, a great story that Elder Hayford tells, and ever since I heard this back in like 1999, because I remember when I read that speech shortly after it was given in Geneva, Switzerland, and I've referred to this example again and again since then. I may have already talked about this in the podcast, but it's worth repeating. Elder Hafen talks about the history of Australia that began, well, with Aborigines and so on, but when colonized by England, it became a penal colony. It was a giant prison continent, right, where they kept sending their their crooks. They didn't have enough space in England, so they were putting them on a boat and sending them to Australia, and it became a pretty wild and crazy place that was, uh, you know, inhabited by mostly convicts and mostly men. Six out of seven people deported to Australia were men and the women were prostitutes or or thieves or something and they were not treated well by the men so it was a pretty wild and crazy place and then the English discovered that it was rich in natural resources and they thought okay what what are we going to do now because we've turned it over to a bunch of crazy guys how are we going to reclaim some sense of of society and stability and order on this rich continent so that we can actually utilize the great gifts that are here 
And they had a lot of uh, meetings about that in England and tried to figure out different things. They tried different things. And then in 1840, a woman named Carolyn Chisholm, who was a reformer and had a seat at the table at some of these meetings, said this. She said, for all the clergy you can dispatch, all the schoolmasters you can appoint, all the churches you can build, and all the books you can export will never do much good without God's police, wives and little children, good and virtuous women. So she's saying, you know, you can dispatch all the clergy, all the schoolmasters, all the churches, the books. It'll never do that much good without women who will marry those men and have families. Because wives and little children, she's referring to as God's police. Now, that's quite a strong statement, right? And she's, she's talking about good and virtuous women. And she spent 20 years going around England and recruiting young women who were good and virtuous and willing to go and marry those guys. And she sent couples as well who were already stable and and good people. But she recruited a lot of young women to go, and they went under the protection of the military so they wouldn't just be thrown to the wolves. And they married those men, and they tamed an entire continent. That is the civilizing influence of women. It is by God's design that if we do not deny the strength of womanhood, we don't diminish them. We don't apologize for them. We don't set them aside so that we can compete head-to-head with men. But we actually recognize how God has designed things to be beautifully collaborative. And there is equal value. Neither is the man without the woman nor the woman without the man in the Lord. Finally, this beautiful statement by Margaret Nadald in 2000. Women of God can never be like women of the world. The world has enough women who are tough. We need women who are tender. There are enough women who are coarse. We need women who are kind. There are enough women who are rude. We need women who are refined. We have enough women of fame and fortune. We need more women of faith. We have enough greed. We need more goodness. We have enough vanity. We need more virtue. We have enough popularity. We need more purity. Brothers and sisters, may you both both renew your testimonies of this divine difference between men and women and honor it your entire lives. May we teach our children and the youth of the church so to do. This is absolutely essential if we are going to become a Zion people. If we're going to choose glory in the highest level of the celestial kingdom, we can do it. Thanks to my husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care.